Well, here in Luke 9, we've got a, a long chapter, and I, I want to focus on the teaching of Jesus about his cross and how he understood the implications of his death upon the cross, and they are radical indeed. Uh, let's start off in verse, verse 23. If any man will come after me, now don't forget the disciples are presented as walking around behind Jesus. And he's saying, look, if you're really going to come after me, if you're going to be followers of me in reality, rather than just externally appearing to walk behind me in the eyes of uh, society as is watching in first century Palestine, if you're really going to walk behind me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, take up the, uh, the cross. The implication is, I suppose, that we are picking up the cross of Jesus, and yet it's also our cross, that his death and his self-denial and his whole cross-carrying, the, the image there of a criminal's final walk to his place of death, that applies very personally to each of us. We each have an individual understanding of the cross, because each life is different, in the same way as each resurrection, in a sense, will be different. Each eternity will be different. My salvation is, in that sense, a little bit different from yours because we are each unique. And so, because our eternity is going to be, in that sense, unique to each of us, uh, what it means for Duncan to be immortalized is a bit different for what it, from what it means, for example, for you or Jose or Vladimir or Svetlana to be immortalized. And so, therefore, the cross that we must take up before that resurrection, the death that comes before the resurrection, is therefore, in that sense, also personalized to us. Now, this Greek translated, take up the cross, take up his cross, uh, strong goes so far as to say that it really implies expiation or forgiveness of, of sins, the idea of taking away. Now, the point is that our response to our sin having been taken away or taken up in the, in the idiom is for us to take up likewise the cross, the cross that brought us salvation. So insofar as we perceive that our sin really has been dealt with and taken up and taken away, we can't be passive to that. Our response will be to participate in that death that brought about our salvation. And in that sense, it is so true that Jesus didn't die as a substitute, but as a representative. He died so that we might participate in, in his death, rather than die as a, a kind of a, a spectator event that we look on at approvingly and thankfully. We are actually asked to get involved with this and to participate in it. Now, Another insight, I think, into how he perceived the cross uh, is in verse 44, where he says, The Son of Man shall be, future tense, shall be delivered into the hands of men, looking to that moment when he was handed over uh, into the power of his crucifiers. He will be. And yet the parallel record in, in Mark, in Mark 9.31, he says, I am delivered up, right now, present tense. So what did he say? Well, 
the more critical school of biblical scholarship would say, well, yeah, they, Mark and Luke just sort of wrote down basically what they thought he said, and, well, there was a slight uh, difference. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, I would say that there's not just, it's not just different people having a different recollection of what he said. I mean, the words that we read here as the transcripted words of Jesus, are they really that? Or are they simply the, the ideas of Mark or Luke? Well, I believe, of course, that they are the actual words of Jesus. So what then did he say? And interestingly, considering the four Gospels are four different accounts of the same uh, reality, I find it so significant that there is actually no real contradiction ever between those four accounts. And if they were, in fact, just the ideas of uh, men and just the, the personal recollection, right or wrong, accurate or inaccurate of, let's say, Mark and Luke, then there would have to be major points of contradiction. And there are not. Those issues that are raised as contradictions all have very legitimate explanations. So what did Jesus say? Now, the tenses in Greek are highly specific, not like Hebrew where they're rather vague. So what did he say? I am delivered up or I will be delivered up? I see no problem in resolving this by saying he said both. He said either I am delivered up into the hands of men and then he said and I will be delivered up into the hands of men or maybe the other way around I will be delivered up into the hands of men I am delivered up into the hands of men. The point is that he's saying that the essence of that future crucifixion, as it was still future at that time, he was living out in his life. So there was not a kind of a, a discontinuity between the life that he lived and the final hours of crucifixion. In the same way as picking up the cross in our lives is not an occasional flash of spiritual brilliance, an occasional uh, deep generosity or forgiveness or, or whatever, it is an active living out in daily life, picking up the cross daily, so that when perhaps the extreme, uh, as we would perceive them, tests and trials come of illness, of maybe facing death itself, or, or temporary loss of employment, of wealth, money, stability, or whatever, when those crises come, we deal with them within the spirit in which we live daily life. Your reaction to losing your keys temporarily uh, for your apartment or, or your home or whatever, oh, you're locked out, you know, that is, that the way you deal with that is in essence the same as you deal with the news that your wife's got cancer or the news that you've lost a child or whatever. What I'm saying is that those special crises are not unrelated to the apparently smaller crises that we face in, in daily life. We are to pick up our cross daily. Jesus in his time of dying was therefore the word made flesh and yet he was that all the way through his life and here in verse uh, 43 and 44 they were amazed and wondered at all things which Jesus did and he responds to that by saying let these sayings sink down into your ears this is one of a number of times in the Gospels uh, particularly in Luke where his deeds are paralleled with his sayings because day by day 
there was a, a total congruence between his words and his actions. Or as John puts it, the word was made flesh, not as a one-off act, but in daily life. And I think that's why, as we saw at the end of uh, Luke 8 there, 56, he charged very often people who'd had miracles done to them, that they charged them that they should tell no one what had been done. Don't tell people what's been done. Let it speak for itself. The words and the actions of Jesus would somehow come together naturally in a far more persuasive, convincing manner than if people just ran around saying what he had done. Now, that is, of course, the pattern for our lives. And we know God's word. I think the majority of us listening to this know God's word. We are not biblically ignorant. And yet the, the art, if you like, of the whole thing is for that word to become flesh in us as it was in the Lord. This is what it's all about. Now, while we're in Luke 9, there, verse 45, I find very... Uh, beautiful in a way that he keeps telling them of course that he's going to die and they don't accept it and it says verse 45 it was hid from them that they perceived it not and we know that is it's really obvious he told them it was going to happen and then it happened and they didn't get it and yet just look over to chapter 10 and you might like to scribble this next to chapter 9 verse 45 put a circle around the word hid and just look over at chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus prays to the Father and thanks him that you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes. Verse 23, and he says to the disciples, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. And he's using see in the sense of perceive, understand. So, in front of God, in prayer, he says you have revealed these hidden things to these babes, these disciples. And yet, chapter 9, verse 44, sorry, 45, says that these things were hid from them. And I think you see not the only example here of Jesus being very positive about the disciples when he prays to God. When he talks to the Father about the believers, John 17 would be the classic example, he talks about them far more positively than in reality at that time they really were. Uh, John 17 is a, a lovely study from that point of view. Just read the, how Jesus is talking to God about his brethren. And yet many of the things that he says there about their understanding, their unity, uh, their belief that he had come out from, from the Father, etc. Even within John, he actually uses the same language in telling the disciples, you don't really believe. Or, Do you now believe? Uh, that I really came from the Father, implying obviously you don't. Now, that same Jesus is, I think, interceding for us in the same way right now. He is very positive about us to God before the throne of grace. Far more positive than we actually are. Because in that sense, he is our advocate. He's making a case for us. And I think particularly in this whole question about the crucifixion, they didn't get it. Now, why didn't they get it? Why was it hid from them? I think because they perceived that, unconsciously perceived, that if he was to die, they also were to die. That all that was true of him was to be true for them. 
And why is it that as we read the record of the crucifixion, as, as we read verses and chapters like Luke 9, which clearly have it in mind, why do I sense, maybe it's just me, but I don't think so, why do I sense that we like to skim over it? Oh, that, it was awful. I find it really hard to, to, to look at that. You know, when I read from the children's Bible to our children, and we come to the bit about the crucifixion, I always say, oh, don't really like reading this. But why? Why? Why is there that deep reservation about getting involved with the uh, crucifixion account? Why is there the admission by many of us that we suffer from a problem of mind-wandering at the breaking of bread. Why is this? There must be a deeper reason. And the reason, I think, is the same as why the disciples didn't get it when Jesus quite clearly predicts his upcoming death, because his death is to be ours. Now, verse 51, the Lord set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And this is a theme of Luke's. The whole Gospel is talking about Jesus going up, going up, going up to Jerusalem. Even when at times, geographically, he's actually not going up to Jerusalem, he's going away from Jerusalem. But the point is that through all the zigzag of human life, and that includes going back sometimes from the cross, ultimately we are on a path to the place of crucifixion. In the end, I think in spiritual maturity, that is what we come to realize, that we are asked to seriously sacrifice, even to die, to give up life for him. Now, of course, this reference to him steadfastly setting his face to, to go to the cross, Isaiah 50, verse 7, prophecy of Jesus, he hardened his face like a rock. He realized this, that we're not in this world to just get what we can. We are on a path to losing life, humanly speaking. And yet, incidentally, the same phrase is used a couple of times in Jeremiah about the wicked within Judah who harden their faces like a rock to go in the way of the flesh. Jeremiah 5, verse 3, um, 3, verse 3, 4, verse 30. So, basically, we are confirmed in the path we wish to take, one way or the other. Jesus is very demanding. There is no question about this whatsoever. I mean, he says, verse 58, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Like, do you really want to come after me? But that, that is surely an exaggeration, because he didn't literally, I don't think, sleep every night under the stars. There were the ministering women. And yet he puts it in this very demanding way in the same way as he talks about to the Jews about drinking his blood knowing that that was very provocative uh, to them he does his miracles on the Sabbath day he talks about cutting off arms and limbs ripping out our eyes uh, etc he on one hand is the Jesus who loved little children and who is our ultimate saviour almost in spite of ourselves as we've often made the point in our talks about uh, chapters from the Gospels. And yet, exactly because of that, he is, quite rightly, a very demanding Lord, in a sense. 
And that's quite right. And, and you see this um, really in verse 57 where the man says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And another man says, 59, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, but come and preach the gospel. This is very demanding language. Because in Palestine, burial typically took place on the day of death. And so the man's father had died that very day. And yet, he's willing to follow Jesus. Now, typically, there was the burial, and then there was uh, six days of mourning. And the guy's saying, yeah, okay, uh, I'll give up the six days of mourning, but obviously i just got to go to the funeral. Because... It was uh, absolutely uh, fundamental to Jewish culture that you buried your father. And to not do that was uh, really a, a rejection of all that it meant to be Jewish. And Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Go and preach the gospel. Now, th this is a very high demand that he's making. And don't kid yourself that the radical nature of the demand on you and I is just as great. If someone loves us as much as Jesus has loved us, we have to respond. And you also, <clears throat> I think, see here, maybe in some sort of uh, exaggerated language, but anyway, the point is that the preaching of the gospel is that important. And he seems to imply there is not even a moment to waste. He's inviting them to see that, look, immediately, every single minute counts in spreading the gospel. You're living on a, the knife edge of, of urgency to get this message out to others. And I think that that's what we've got to remember, that there is an urgency in spreading the gospel. As we'll see when we look at Luke 14, uh, the parable of the, uh, the Great Supper, that we must urgently go out and compel people to come in. So then, there is this radical uh, element to the demand of Jesus. The very fact that, on one hand, he will save us, almost at times when I, I think of some of the teachings of Jesus and Paul's interpretation of grace, you feel that he'll almost save us in spite of ourselves at times. And yet, on the other hand, there are these demands, very demanding language. Now, because I've been involved for some years of working with uh, people in Iran and Afghanistan, people who've baptized, who've been killed for their faith, who've been tortured, etc. And I share those examples, those, uh, that news, the need for prayer, etc., with uh, brethren and sisters in other parts of the world. And I always hear the same comment, those poor people. And typically, you know, you show the uh, slides, show PowerPoint, show... Uh, pictures, etc., and give a talk, and then you conclude with prayer, and you ask someone to pray, and uh, I can guarantee that almost always the prayer will be, thank you that we haven't got to go through what they go through. And I always feel a bit disappointed that uh, the point has somewhat been missed, that the radical demand is no less for you and me. It, it can't be in that sense uh, fair or just that some guy has an easier path to God's kingdom than than the other. So you, you think of, um, let's say, a, a brother in Afghanistan who was baptized, and then the, uh, the very evening of the day he was baptized, his father-in-law came to him and demanded whether he had uh, left the Muslim faith. He said yes, 
and uh, they took a spade and cut his head off with a spade they didn't even have a, a gun to shoot him with brother Fardus and we may think wow you know what what faith what commitment thank God I, I don't have to do that thank God I don't have a father-in-law who's uh, gonna kill me because I became a Christian let alone in such a primitive way and yet as I say let's think about it is it so that Fardus's path to the kingdom was so much easier than the path of someone, let's say, who is raised in the faith with loving, functional parents, marries someone from a similar background, has kids who also get baptized and has a decent job and nice house, lives in a nice country. You know, is it really so that that person who uh, breathes their last in a, an old people's home, maybe, or surrounded by loving children and grandchildren and lifelong friends, etc., and they sort of eased into their grave almost um, on, on cotton wool, you, you sort of think, well, didn't they have an easier path? And of course the answer, as I see it, must be no, they didn't. It, it can't be. It's a cross either way. So the radical nature of the demands made upon us must not be missed. Now when he says, let the dead bury their dead, know you are not to go and bury your father, um, the Jewish mind would have gone back to Leviticus 21, where the high priest also could not be distracted from his service, even by the death of his father. And that, I think, is the illusion. It's Leviticus 21, 1-11. And yet, in Jewish thinking, and I suppose in our thinking, we would tend to think, yeah, that was the high priest, but I'm not the high priest. I'm just an ordinary, ordinary bloke, you know. I'm not the high priest. But the point is, Jesus is the high priest, but if we are in him, in the same way as we carry his cross, we are to do his work. And this is a mind-blowing idea for people from the Jewish culture that uh, you can do the work of the high priest. And it's picked up really in Hebrews where he talks about the way into the most holy has been now made open. And we can go in, into the holiest place. And what do you do in the holiest place? What did the high priest do every year? He offered for the sins of the people. He made atonement for others. And we're being told that you can do just the same. That is what you should do. And so it's not that we are spectators at a, at a show and we're approvingly looking on. We are asked to participate and to even uh, feel the work of the high priest as our own. He says, don't look back. In this uh, same context, verse 62, no one who's put his hand on the plough looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. To plough the straight furrow, you've got to keep your eye on the end point. And that end point, in our case, is the Lord Jesus as a person. It's very similar, of course, to Peter, that when he took his eyes off Jesus when he was walking on the water, he started to drown. And that, in a sense, is why we're here to break bread, to refocus ourselves upon him as a person, to realize that we are walking behind him. And therefore, as we started off by saying, we are to pick up his cross and make it our own. And, you know, looking behind us, this is very much the language of uh, Lot's wife looking back, looking back to all the material human things. And Jesus is saying, don't be like her. He's just putting it in another way. And 
yet you should notice that the things he, he talks about that you no, know, he doesn't uh, want these people to do, such as burying your father, there's nothing wrong with burying your father. And there's even biblical uh, precedent for that, with uh, Joseph, uh, for example. And yet Jesus is saying that he is, in that sense, more demanding, more demanding, even than how it was in, in the Old Testament. And so, yeah, Abraham also you know, is recorded as uh, burying his father. Wanting to go and say farewell to your family. That's exactly what Elisha did when he was called to his ministry. And that was okay. And Jesus is alluding to that and saying, Look, because I have loved you, I am even more demanding than God was of the Old Testament prophets. So, I suppose we uh, can never quite get the balance right as we think about the cross of Jesus and face up to ourselves that, yes, it is very challenging. And yet there is this huge assurance that we are saved. You know, you think of Romans 8, where Paul is struggling, even under inspiration, to find the right words, the, right, the, uh, the lexical items, that would be how I'd put it, to, to find the language. To, to express how wonderful it is that we are saved and that we can confidently look forward to the Lord's return because of his death for us and yet what I'm saying is that that extent of love of devotion, of salvation to us cannot possibly cannot possibly just be accepted passively if you feel it and believe it to the point of feeling it all these radical demands of Jesus make perfect sense